Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Oh, although I see I've got the, the last video frame up here. But um, a huge, huge thank you to everyone um, for checking out all the different uh, videos that we've been doing today and podcasts and everything else. But this is the normal show. The, the, I was going to say, is it the flagship show? I suppose it's not the flagship show, but um, uh, it's certainly it's certainly the one of the most consistent ones that we've done. Probably the first video podcast we did. Yeah, it is. It's the first video podcast we did. So if you haven't been here before and you're new because the World Cup's on and you're hanging out, what we essentially do on this show is we look at uh, questions from the audience. So uh, we have a Patreon. Uh, people on the Patreon send questions in beforehand. Um, it's the, whatever it is, the middle tier one and above that you can ask questions on. And there's also other things on the Patreon, like the Discord channel and uh, ad-free podcasts and random notes from me uh, occasionally, uh, Q&As as well, chats with me, phone chats, all sorts of things. Um, but uh, you can also uh, put your comments up in the YouTube channel as well. If we can get to them, we always will. It's much easier to get to the Super Chats, but you don't have to Super Chat. It's lovely if you do. But you don't have to Super Chat. Just put anything in. I can see there's already a few comments um, um, in there as well. So thanks to Amwish, uh, Max, All Things Cinema Podcast, Keshev. Uh, but let's get on with the show and we'll start with the questions from the Patreon members, which starts with Will. Well, this is this is a nice punchy one to start with. Uh, why is the BCCI so incompetent at organizing venue schedules outfields? So I covered this in one of the shows the other day. I can't remember if it was, well, which one it was now. But essentially, the BCCI should not be running this tournament. And I don't mean that in a way of, oh, the BCCI is terrible, but I don't think any major cricket board should run a World Cup because a World Cup is so different to anything else that you run. So, so from that point alone, the minute that they wanted to do it, and I don't think they're the only board. I think England might have done it before. Um, I'm trying to think if there's some others. Quite often it does go really horribly wrong. And the reason is that the ICC is an events organization. They are used to doing events. Bilateral series are nothing compared to this. It's not even comparable. All right. Think of the amount of teams that are over there, the amount of press, different places, the amount of TV um, crew, uh, you know, sponsors that you have to do. Literally, the ICC have um, have to go out and make sure that no one is selling merchandise outside the ground that contradicts any copyright. So all this sort of stuff that really, during most bilateral series, doesn't exist. You don't have to worry about languages. A couple of years ago, Afghanistan had a press conference and the person they brought up um, only spoke, oh God, I can't remember what language it was. He sp I know he, sp he spoke Urdu and I, say, I don't know why the thumb came up. Um, Urdu and, and Farsi maybe? I can't remember which, which was his, uh, his main language, but he didn't speak English. And Afghanistan didn't allow him to speak um, Urdu. There's no one in the press conference from Afghanistan to speak his native language. There were no, there weren't even any um, uh, Pakistani or Indian journalists there that could help with the Urdu. We literally had to go over into a corner and get the person uh, that did speak Urdu from star ICC staff to translate, so we could get, you know, five minutes of of, of content out of, of this player. So these things, there's no way the BCCI were ready for all that. It's, we've seen with the IPL how much they struggle, and they don't fully operate the IPL, right? That is also operated by IMG. 
it's a really tough thing to do these tournaments. They are not particularly easy. The ICC has a lot of money, but it doesn't have, you know, football World Cup money, right? And I think it would be fair to say that Cricket World Cup is probably more political as well. You know, there's lots of different things that, that go on in all these different places. That explains organizing venues. The schedules is because India do schedules later than I would say any country in the world. Uh, it's terrible at doing schedules and always has been, and they should have just been forced into dates. The outfields, I don't think anyone can excuse that. Um, shouldn't be in a position where we have World Cup outfields that could cause injuries to players. It's uh, hopefully no player gets injured, but they're not safe. Um, and I would be very upset if I was a player having to go out there knowing that I'm only doing it so it doesn't upset some other board, some other member, some other whatever interested party. Uh, I'd be very upset. But yeah, but the general point of the organizing is that they're not organizers. That's not what the BCCI do for uh, big events. They do organize sort of other things, but not big events. And they're really hard, these things. Will says, any thoughts on the shock early elimination of Australia from the Rugby Union World Cup? Uh, first time hearing of it. I, I, I don't know. I'm from Melbourne. We don't care. Wallabies? Something like that. Is George Gregan still playing? Uh, ben says, we have a spider cam. We have uh, we have spider cam. We have, as called by a comedy genius, the robot. But drones seem woefully underused in cricket. They could provide a perfect top-down uh, view of the fielding positions. Uh, why are they so? They are so relatively cheap um, uh, that you could have uh, one per fielder that is locked onto the harmonist. Um, they have used them before, Ben. In fact, really early on, I think it was called the Foxcopter in Australia. Players don't like them above their heads. They feel a lot safer with the um, spider cam, although. Spider cams hit at least two players I can think of. Um, but they do feel a lot safer with spider cam than they do with the um, with the drones. That's a big part of it, I think. Also, spider cam is apparently smoother and safer and easier. Uh, well, not easier, actually, but um, smoother and safer and, and works better in a certain way. Um, it's, got, it's got more of a safety uh, element to it. There was another reason that someone told me, and I'm not sure what the other reason is, but I think there's a, there's a third um, thing. Look, they could certainly do it, and I'm sure they'll do it one day, but I think, uh, you know, the, the spider cam has obviously done pretty well to begin with, um, and so they're going to continue with that for a while. Ben, again, also about doubles here. Um, people often call two teams the GOAT test teams, 1980s Windies and early 2000s Australia. It could only be one goat, so who is it? Well, I mean, that's not true, is it? We call everything a goat these days. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting way of doing it. I was also, by the way, someone put a comment um, on this question to say, 1948, you can't compare the Australian 1948 team to these two teams just because they went around. There was one series. Um, what these teams did was, especially the West Indies, over such a long time, even Australia, what they did, um, West Indies went for longer, had more draws, didn't have a spinner. So there are weaknesses there. Um, Australia was much better at winning games. Certainly struggled a lot with India, despite the fact that India weren't like a powerhouse themselves at that point. It's a, it's a good question. I probably lean towards Australia was better at their peak than the West Indies, but the West Indies... Um, 
rain went on for so long, it would be hard to argue that that isn't a more impressive feat. But then the other side of it is Australia did it when it was slightly more modeled. There were more teams, there were better teams. Um, you had to play more often. I mean, I don't have an answer. Um, it, I, you know, it'd be an interesting. It'd be interesting to see how they would go if they had played each other at their peaks. But then you have to work out which team represents its peak. And should Australia would have a stronger peak? You would have thought just because it has, you know, Warren McGrath. Not a stronger peak. Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. But it's easier to find Australia's peak, whereas. Like the West Indies, I don't even know how you put that team together. You've got Marshall, you've got Ghana, then you probably need Ambrose, and then Holding. Um, was that the Australian team? It feels a little bit easier because it was kind of one generation. You know, McGrath, Warren, Gillespie, Lee, probably right. Um, but yeah, I th I would think just because of the longevity, the West Indies is a more impressive, and and because they had no, you know, Cricket Australia was professional on in their own. The West Indian players were professional, but West Indies cricket was not. So to be able to keep that up as an amateur team, you know, probably one of the early great global black sporting teams as well, right? Like there's doing it in a world where not all the countries are particularly open to you or particularly happy with your existence. Um, all those things are make it trickier, I would have thought, than Australia. Oh, my God. Oh, there we go. Uh, Bloody Bugger says, over a period of 144 days, the 1948 Invincible 17-man squad played five test matches, four wins, one draw, and 34 mostly first-class matches, 25 wins and nine draws. You are given a time machine to bring back a squad of 17 current players in order to replace the opposition teams uh, which the Invisibles faced uh, in each of their 39 matches. Your team will have to follow the rules of the time and only use equipment that was available back then. How well would your team face one-month preparation? Uh, Invincibles wouldn't win a game. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even be close. Uh, and that's not to say the Invincibles weren't incredible and they deserve their, their credit. It was a brilliant team. They were playing weakened uh, England team, of course. But they were a brilliant team. I think they would have been a brilliant team against a full-strength peak England team as well. But almost no one in 1948 Invincibles is ever faced someone six foot eight bowling at 90 miles an hour before. I mean, no, no one in the in the Invincibles had ever faced anyone of that height at that speed, right? Maybe, maybe, and I'm being very friendly here. Some players in the Invincibles had faced someone who had bowled a couple of balls at 90 miles an hour. I don't personally believe it, but it is possible. Um, so that would, would be an issue. The only thing I'd have to do is go back to 1948 Invincibles and have a look if you had um, any wickets that were wet, because that would be a huge... You can't prepare modern players for that. It's just, you know, it's something they don't have to deal with. It's, uh, you know, it's just not the same. Even, even if a, a cover might occasionally leak or, a, you know, they might have a net that's a little bit damp or whatever, it's absolutely nothing. But, but if you're talking about... I don't know how that those batters of that period would be able to handle the bowlers who are that much faster. And that's the, the first part of it. The second part of it is that if you took modern cricketers from today back, they would struggle a little bit with uncovered wickets at times, although pretty flat uncovered wickets also at times. Uh, and they might struggle a little bit more with the back foot no ball law and the different kinds of traje trajectories and everything else. But the advantages on the other side are just so massive um you know the power 
of the modern cricketers and, and everything else. I just can't see how 1948 Invincibles would go out against anyone. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Uh, James says scoring rates in white ball cricket have exploded in the last 20 to 30 years and with a few exception uh, and with a few exceptions exceptions like scoops and ramps, the shots being played are relatively conventional. Has there been particular technical or tactical innovations behind this advancement, or are we seeing the effect of specialization? The batters most capable of playing this way are the ones being picked without regard to their Red Bull record, a bit of both, something else entirely. Uh, when it was first played, it was played uh, in a way that wasn't really maximizing strike rate. So once teams start to think about that, that changes. If you want to look at it from an evolutionary point of view, you, the first thing is that Javid mean Dad hitting the ball over covers head over and over again and taking two. That wasn't something that you did in test cricket. That instantly brings more runs to the table. Then you've got Australia running between... Australia had always been aggressive runners between wickets in test cricket. They took that to a different level. So now you've got players chipping over the top and trying to run twos all the time, no matter where they can, uh, stealing singles. You then go to the Lance Klusner era of the power hitting coming in where people understand that actually there is a way to consistently hit the ball uh, very, very hard over a long period of time. Bats get bigger. Professionalism comes into cricket. So not only are people holding bats that are heavier because they're stronger, um, these uh, the, the athletes that we have in cricket are now 24 hours a day professional um, athletes. And while that improves the bowling as well, of course, what it means is that it's easier to hit boundaries at that point. The field is opened up, so you can't have – it's – I reckon by 1987, teams didn't always have a third man back. Now, part of that was because it was in Asia. By 1992, it's a bit more 50-50. By 96, 99, teams are, you know, Neil Johnson plays a bunch of like ramp type shots uh, against Australia. Is it in the World Cup or just around the World Cup? Um, obviously, Marillier has already done it as well. So this shot is coming through. By 2003, you know, fine leg and third man, I almost up automatically at times, which what that means is that you're you're covering all the power positions, but now even leg glances and, you know, Arjuna Ranatunga running the ball down fine, all these sorts of shots are opening up because before you hit boundaries where your best shot was, which was most players would have been generally over deep mid-wicket, it might have been straight, you might have got some guys who were really good slashing through the offside. As ODI cricket goes, people start to develop. So I think the most interesting shot in the history of one-day cricket is not the scoops and the ramps, although those are fascinating. It's a lofted cover drive, a shot that really you have to make a real effort to hit in the air um, traditionally because of the front elbow and the way that we played it, and that was completely changed. So all those things have changed. Uh, then teams start to score more runs, so other teams look for methods to score more runs. 
the playing conditions have changed. The uh, amount of balls we have, the power, uh, the power plays have changed. T20 comes along. Um, so there's millions of different things. Specialization, as you say, certainly um, has has a part of that. Um, the uh, but I think test plays hit the ball harder now than they ever did. In fact, you go back and have a look at <coughs> old footage. Test plays definitely hit the ball harder now than they ever have before. So there's so many different um, changes in why things have, have gone forward. Uh, Josh says last week I was going to ask if Cole McC- McConkle should have been in New Zealand side over Ratchet Ravindra because he's better white ball batter and bowler. Am I an idiot? I can't answer that for you, Josh. Look, the I think New Zealand rate. Ratchet Ravindra higher than everyone else. And they've had a pretty good track record of recent times of deciding that someone is worthy of international cricket, bringing them in. And sometimes you look at them and go, what? This guy? And it works. And I think we have to give them a little bit more credit than I would say most other teams at the moment, because they have had so much success over that time. Now, that doesn't mean they're always going to be right. And it doesn't mean that Cole McConkle, is it McConkle or McConkey? I thought it was McConkey. Have I got his name wrong? How many Coles? Yeah, McConkey. Scared me there, Josh. Thought I was going crazy. Uh, I'm not an expert in Cole McConkey. I know that uh, there are some people that, that think he's a very good limited player, which uh, is having a good record here 37 first class average, somewhere on a couple of ODIs that he's played in, uh, and bowling. Bowling in the state cricket. Let's have a look. Yeah, he's still a part-timer. So he's got a, he's got a bowling average of 46 in Monday cricket. So they they think that uh, what they're trying to breed in New Zealand, which is very different to a lot of other places, India don't need to do this. Australia's thinking about it and, and toying with it a little bit. England's really going all in on role definition, whereas New Zealand's very good at finding players that can play multiple roles. Like we know Devin Conway could bat one to five, right? Daryl Mitchell can probably bat one to six. Um, Will Young, one to four. You know, they've got a lot of players who are very, very, fl- uh, Todd Latham, probably one to five. A lot of players who are very, very flexible. And I think that that's another reason they like Ratchet and Ravindra. And, and they'll prove right. They needed a top order player. And I would assume without getting too much into the stats that, that McConkey is probably a more of a down the order player, although I have to have a look at his first class record um, to be sure of that. So you want cover, and it's the Joe Denley rule when England had Joe Denley, and Dal Milan's a very good example of this as well. And it's why Harry Brook didn't quite fit into their original squad plan because they're trying to cover everything. This is why you should have longer, uh, uh, deeper squads. Although if New Zealand had a deeper squad, I'm not sure Ratchet Ravindra would have played, but that's a very funny side effect of, of that. But that's why you should have deeper squads so you, so that you don't need to pick a player who's not as good but can cover more roles. You really want to pick three spare batters in a squad, um, you know, one for the top, one for the middle, and, you know, one lower down the order. That would be the ideal situation. With Ratchin, they probably thought what they had was someone who could bat six and seven, one, two, three, and wouldn't be terrible if you had to bat four or five. Um, I mean, they've got lucky, and I don't mean that in a, I mean, they picked the guy, they've trained him and everything else. But they've got lucky in the fact that he could have gone up the order and not done very well, struggled a little bit with his new role, nicked off a couple of times, and everyone's like, why'd you pick that guy? Where's Cole? Where's that Cole we've been hearing so much about? 
Uh, Josh says, in ODIs, how good would a batter need to be if he had an infinite average but a strike rate of only 70? He would be poor. I mean, what that would give you is it would mean that at the other end you're playing a 25-over game. So if you're, at, if you're going at a strike, I need to do the math on this. Uh, what is it? It's uh, 300 balls, so 150 balls, right, per innings. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Times, what did we say? Um, 0.73. No, what did you say? 0.70. God, get that right. Uh, so 150 times 0.7. So you look at 105. So it'd be 105. So if the other 25 overs, you would need to score, because he's not going out, right? That batter is literally playing the entire innings every time. So anyone else would have to score in the 25 overs if you wanted to be a pass score. Um, yeah, so you've got 105 at one end. Let's say you, want, you wanted your average score to be 300, so that's 195 by 25. So, so you'd have to score at eight runs and over at the other end. But knowing, but knowing that you wouldn't lose any wickets. But here's the thing. No one would be able to do that because obviously no one would keep their wicket intact every single time. But if you knew that going in, that would allow you to stack the rest of your lineup with Andre Russell type players, you know, um, guys, Shahid Afridi type players, Josh Butler, Liam Livingston, Glenn Maxwell type players. Because you could then, uh, like, uh, you, you, could make, you could make a really good, um, uh, a risky batting lineup around them because at one end you're not going to lose any wickets. And so you're willing to lose wickets at a slightly higher rate at the other end. Um, whether any team would have enough players of that ability in their top six or seven. So you've really lost one batter. So it would have to be. So you've only got five specialist batters left in most lineups. And so if you had five guys at the other end, and they all average thirty, it's getting risky. It's. I, I'm not sure it works. It's a great exercise though. Lots of fun. Uh, Swami Nathan says, is Santa's lack of wickets akin to Rashid Khan's lack of wickets? Can it be explained by batters taking the safe approach when, of milking singles um, with the Dutch game be ex exception? Or is it a lack of wicket talent? He's taken wickets before, so no. He's not getting defended like Rashid Khan um, or Sanal Narayan. Most finger spinners, I think you'll find, don't have good wicket-taking records in ODI cricket or T20 cricket. I don't think that's an accident. Uh, this World Cup will be slightly different partly because it's being played in India. Um, but in general, I think you'll find that finger spinners don't take wickets, and that has been going on since the 80s. I don't have much data on the 70s, but certainly since the 80s. Oh, oh Swami Nathan again. How did coaches and selectors mislabel generational batting talent like J.S. Saria and Smith and start them off as part-time spinner and lower-order batter? Okay, so the, the most important thing here is no one in Australia thought that Steve Smith wasn't a batter. They maybe thought his batting wouldn't translate to the international level in a, you know, first-class, really good player, not right for thing. But the whole thing of him sta starting as, as a, as a player, I mean, look at the amount of players that Australia picked. Uh, Marcus North, Cameron White, Steve Smith, Manus Labuschagne. Am I missing another one? I feel like I'm missing another one. These guys all played as bowlers, even though some of them were in the top six. But they all played as bowlers because um, Australia needed spin bowling options. Like every, no one no one in Australian cricket I had ever met had ever said that Steve Smith was a better bowler than he was a batter. <laughs> right? 
they got a bit excited because he took a, a bag of wickets, but I think he was still averaging 47 with the ball at that point. Like, it, it wasn't. Jaser is really different because he's a really late developing player. I don't know if I have his first class. Uh, I, I don't know if I've looked at his early first class record. But if you, I looked at this the other day. I, I, I should get Shion on the podcast. Um, but I sent it to Shion the other day. His record in the first however many ODI games is dreadful. And he bats opening. He bats first drop. He bats middle order. He bats lower order. They batted him everywhere. They thought he could play. They were desperate to get a guy in who they thought had a bit of bowling talent into that side. And they were right. Eventually, it was a big reason why they won the World Cup. But he couldn't make any runs anywhere he went. So I don't think your your point on those particular people are wrong. But as Ali, Mark Richardson, Ravi Shastri, probably missing a couple of others um, out there, are certainly players who who showed who you would have thought had the attributes that could have translated to their particular skill but weren't being given the opportunities. Um, like Mark Richardson bats 10 and 11, and no one even suggests he could bat. Um, you know, Shastri takes a long time to, for him to sort of work his way up the order as well. And I forget who the other player was, I said. But it uh, as Ali. So as Ali makes a fairly early transition. But I remember... And I'm not sure, I haven't gone back and had a look at the records here, but I remember that there was, it was always said that David Boone was picked partly for underage cricket because he could bowl. You're talking about people who really understand cricket at a young age. So Stuart Broad, Simon, is, is much, probably a better one than anyone else you've said here. Stuart Broad was thought to be a batting all-rounder when he was 16. He bowled little juicy medium paces. No one really took his bowling all that seriously, although they thought it was a, a cool second skill for him to have. But everyone thought he was going to be a batter. He had these long, elegant strokes. Goes to Australia um, at 16, gets, uh, by his own words, essentially just gets sledged and sledged and sledged until he just like, uh, that's it, I'm going to bowl as fast as I can. And that's the birth of the Stuart Broad that ends up being an international cricketer. So does that mean it was wrong for all the other people not to be able to do that? And it's, um, Stuart Broad's one. This is a slightly different situation, but Darren Goff was playing in a first-class game and Richie Richardson was his captain. And he was bowling like, you know, what England seamers do. 80 mile an hour, little swingers, whatever. And Richie Richardson's like, just bowl quick, just bowl quick. Sometimes things like that completely open up a player and they make them think about things very, very different. And so you, that it's hard for you to know as a coach what that thing is and whether you will break a very talented player. How many questions are you guys putting today? Um, so I'm, I've got like three guys. I've asked like 10 questions. Something Nathan again says, I have a theory that the reason for the jarring commentary from Asian players to commentators is due to their lack of college education where you get to refine your language skills. Center players don't suffer uh, this since English is their first and only language. No, I no, I don't think it's the university thing. I mean, I haven't been to university. Um, I feel like I can talk okay. No, I don't. Um, I know. What you, I know what you're saying. It's my first language. I think it's the first language thing. I think if you're commentating or you're broadcasting, if whatever language you dream in or you think in your mind in is your first language, there are some people who can switch between them all and they're fluent in all of them. That's fine. But for the vast majority of people, they're almost live transcribing it in their head um, into a different language. And in commentary, that sounds horrible. The other thing is that people who don't speak it as their first language gen generally cling on to cliches and, 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 you know, certain phraseology that actually doesn't, that is jarring. 
Um, so yeah, I think it's much more to do with that. And, and from the, the players I know whose language is, their first language isn't English, they would admit a very similar thing. It's not quite that they're, it's just taking that little bit longer. It, if you ever listen to someone who hasn't played a lot of cricket do ball by ball, it's a very, very similar thing. Because if I do ball by ball, I know 90 to 95% of everything I need to know. Most professional cricketers who do it exactly the same, right? Or even higher than me, right? Just instantly know, oh, I you know, could see his wrist come down the back of that ball. Um, and you can see where the seam was ending. That's an outswing. It didn't swing, but that's what he was trying to bowl, right? And, you know, it took the outside part of the bat and that went to backward point. If you don't know any of that, and, and you have to be an expert yourself to pick this up, but when you're doing ball by ball with someone who doesn't know those sorts of things, they don't know what to say with the delivery. And then the ball, and they'll say, and that is hit into the offside and it's gone to backward point. It's not quite as... Um, uh, jolty is that, but it's jolty. And it's a similar sort of thing. So if you don't know the language of cricket, ball by ball is very hard. If you're not speaking your first language, commentary is very hard. It's very hard anyway. Oh my God, Simon Nathan, what's going on here? Uh, the Dutch um, soccer team in the 70s took for, uh, uh, football forward with an idea called total football. Please take a stab at constructing a total cricket team from history. Well, the, the, the total cricket team is England when Adel Rashid's batting at 11. Because Adel Rashid could play, uh, could bat, and the power plays the hitter. Don't think you would use him that way by that age, but he certainly could have. Uh, Liam Plunkett could have been a, a you know um, someone that would have gone up, up the order. Ben Stokes could have taken the new ball. Joe Root could have bowl, does bowl, did bowl with the new ball. Um, so that would have been it. The T Twenty team, I would have say more than the One Day team, uh, but I'd have to go back and have a look. And the only other one would be nineteen ninety nine South Africa because they could bat to nine, and they could and 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 South Africa could and did have 11s where Pat Simcox was at number 11, where he had first-class hundreds as well. Yeah, Hardsy Cronier would have been bowling. Callis would have been bowling. Don't know if McMillan would have played in any of those. Um, but they could have constructed wild 11s if they wanted to. Bob Woolmer was actually weirdly conservative with what he could have done. Lucky I didn't have that team. Ben says, QDK seems a very difficult character, but clearly a wonderful talent, and I'm not sure South Africa managed very well. If he had been born in any of the big three teams, how would his career have moved differently? I, yeah, I don't know if I see him as a difficult character. He's different to other players, and he, I think he thinks about life slightly differently and is maybe a bit more seaball hitball in his life than some other people are, which might rub people up the wrong way at times. I think that's all fair. Uh, when we when we talk about uh, QDK, um, I'm not sure that kind of person would be any different in a big three nation. I don't think South Africa have handled him badly. I think he's, um, I mean, he's made a lot of runs. And he's played well. I can't. The captaincy was the only thing I thought they did horribly wrong, just because he was never going to keep that job and he didn't want that job and he didn't last very long in that job. Because says, um, how big a a role does fitness play in cricket because Virat is so fit. Would that give him uh, one to two extra years? A lot of fans, including me, criticise players like Rohit Pants and a few others for their weight, which they put on, uh, which they put on the last few years, and they were not like that before. Is that a fair criticism or not? Because I, th uh, <clears throat> because we think that it definitely affects their batting at one or two percent. It's a really interesting question, this, because when you are tired, you make poorer decisions. And so if you look at the absolute best batters of all time, I don't think you'll find that many of them who are not uber fit. But there's a, in that sort of just that level below, there are actually a lot of batters who, who are there who are not fit. So is that what the difference is? 
you know, you look at Bradman, for instance, or Steve Smith, um, you know, uh, those sorts of players, uh, they were incredibly fit. And I do think over a long period of time that helps. What I would say is that weight is not actually fitness. And I've talked to a lot of players over the years, fit players and unfit players about this. And even the fit players will say, this guy does as much preparation and work in the gym as I do. He eats a perfectly respectable diet, but he can't get rid of this part of fat. Aaron Finch is the perfect example of, Aaron Finch used to end up with a, I think most people would have said that Aaron Finch was a slightly unathletic um, body. But when you talk to the Vic boys about Aaron Finch, they would say that his his um, uh, uh, body fat percentage uh, pinch tests um, were actually pretty level because he didn't have an inch of body fat on his legs, but he had a lot of body fat on his upper body. So is he fit or not fit? Right? So that's why, you know, just looking at weight is not, pati- I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a very, very good predictor, but it doesn't always mean the, much, the most. And also, in particular, there are going to be particular roles in cricket. You're going to want bigger people, right? And we're already starting to see that, especially in T20 cricket and one-day cricket. You probably prefer someone who is more solid, who can hit more sixes because they're a bigger frame and you know they're stronger than someone who is thin and can steal you twos in a T20 game. I, I think fitness, you know, it's. I remember talking to a bowler, a former international bowler, who told me fitness didn't matter at all. As long as he could bowl, you know, his four spells a day, he'd be fine. And I, and I said, there's no way, if if that's the way you're looking in, that you're not holding yourself back and you're not bowling at full speed all the all the time. Um, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to bowl your full spell because you weren't fit. You've just said that by your own, um, uh, you know, you, you, your own words. So I do think for, if you think about it that way, it holds players back. However, James Harden has certainly, you know, and Luka Doncic, um, I'm trying to think of a footballer who's not, you know, we've seen footballers before, um, Players in all sports, you know, sometimes tennis players are not as fit as other tennis players. Uh, you certainly see that in a women's game sometimes. It, a lot of these sports are still about how you read the game, your individual skills, your ability to repeat, uh, repeat actions and all that sort of stuff. If you have all those better than someone else that's fit, but if you give me a player who is absolutely fit and is working on their game just as much as someone else who is not fit over a long period of time, I would think there would be a difference. Whether it's 1% or 2%, I, I can't tell you. Um, and, and the thing about having extra years at the end of your career, Vickers, the problem with that stat is I would be sure if everyone was fit over a long period of time, you would get that. We're already starting to see that with, you know, the tennis players and Tom Brady and Jimmy Anderson and these sorts of athletes coming through. However, if you get an injury when you're 31 and you do your anterior cruciate or you do your Achilles, you might never come back anyway. So it doesn't, it's not a safeguard. It just means if 50 players were all uh, very fit and 50 players weren't fit, you would expect the 50 players who weren't fit um, to not last as long. It's little things like where weight can really wear you down is, uh, you know, ankles, knees um, specifically, uh, you know, so, and once your knees go as a batter, your bat path uh, can go with that. So there are, there are actual issues that can come from um, being a little bit, uh, heavier carrying more weight when you're running and and fielding and everything james says in a champions of champions world cup featuring each winning team in history which four teams make the semi-finals and who wins the world cup of world cups okay so there's two ways of answering this because it goes back to the 1948 question and the 1975 team wouldn't qualify for this tournament 
Um, not that they didn't have good cricketers, but cricket just moved on so so much uh, from that point that they wouldn't qualify. Uh, but the 1975 West Indies team, not the best West Indies team, um, but was a really, really good team. So if you look at it from an era perspective, I almost picked the last four or four of the last five teams or four of the last six teams um, and, and go from that perspective. But if you're looking at the most dominant teams, I think 79 West Indies was a really, really interesting team. Um, what, what else do we have? Then your next team. I mean, Pakistan, I want to say Pakistan in 92, but actually had a pretty poor tournament. They probably had the worst tournament of any team that's ever won. The Sri Lanka team I really, really like. Uh, whether that would have translated as well outside of Asia, I don't have the stats to hand, so I don't know. Uh, 99 Australia, probably not, but would be a really, really strong team. 2000 Australia doesn't have, 2003 doesn't have Warner, 2007 doesn't have Warner. Um, 2003, I kind of feel like a lot of the Australian best players are more in their peak. Um, although, so I think 2003 is better than 2007, although I have to go back through the full lineups. Um, I'd like Gillespie to be available for that, even if um, Bickle did very, very well in that tournament. Um, where are we up to? 2011. That's a good team, should win in most places. So if you've got 79, 2003 or 2007, 2011, they've got 2015 Australia. I don't think that's as strong as the other two Australias. And then you've got 2019. Who, again, I, I think England had a pretty good World Cup. I suppose the final makes it look slightly worse. I would like to see 79 West Indies go up against 2019 England and whichever Australian team you think is the strongest against 2011 uh, India. I think, oh, but then what do I do with Sri Lanka? I think those are the four best teams. Um, Sri Lanka might be better than 79 um, uh, West Indies. But if you're asking me what the best team is, it's probably one of the Australias of 2003, 2007. I probably think 2003, but I'm not positive on that. Uh, Miraj says, the bat sensors are being used by a few players. Or would you ever get players to use them? And why do they work? And why don't they? Which batters would benefit the most out of it? Uh, yeah, I think quite a few players are using them now. Um, that sometimes you can't see them as well. Some of them are stickers and stuff. There's all these different things that they use out there. Look, it's just more information. I think you can tell players if uh, they're opening the face too early or closing the face too early. You know, bat speed, bat plane, all those sorts of things are really helpful. Which players would help? I mean, I think it helps all batters, really. I don't think there's a kind of batter that it wouldn't help. I would. I think that it would be very helpful to people to work out their flaws against, let's say you were struggling against left arm seam, is there's something about your bat path that is different against left arm seam than right arm seam, and other players aren't doing that. I think those are the sorts of things uh, that you would be using. Uh, let's have a quick break. And then after the break, oh my God, there's so many comments in, in, in there. What's going on? Um, I've got a couple more Patreon, but then I'll get to the comments as well. You're listening to Wagon Wheel with Jared Kimber. All right, welcome back. Uh, there's a couple of questions, although someone's just putting crap in the room as well, literally in this case. Uh, what else we got with T20 Focus? Oh, that's interesting. All right, uh, let's just get through the Patreon ones. Don't know why there were so many on Patreon this week. Cam says, how sore must Hayley Matthews' shoulders be from carrying the West Indies uh, through their recent T20 series against Australia? Uh, surely must be one of the all-time great individual performances in what is otherwise a very weak team. It's Andy Flower, wasn't it? Um, who else? I want to say Basil Mamu, but that's not fair. It's not, not even Murali. They had slightly more. But Andy Flower is maybe a very good example of a player single-handedly doing that. But we've seen 
really good players have been critical series like that before as well. So I suppose it has happened a few times. Uh, uh, but she was incredible. Uh, Niran says, what do you think of the Sri Lanka-South Africa pe- uh, pitch? There was nothing in it for bowlers. Do these uh, pitches make 50-over game better or worse? I, I, f- I find this interesting because there hasn't been a batting-heavy tournament so far. And we've seen lots of pitches that have helped bowlers. We've seen lots of pitches that have favoured bowlers. Isn't that what we want? Like it's, I think it's one of the great things about having it in a place, uh, keeping it on turf, is that we don't quite know. So sometimes you will get really batting friendly pitches, and sometimes you won't. So I don't have an issue with that at all. If every pitch was like that, I wouldn't like it. But if every pitch was like the India Australia pitch, um, I probably might not like that either. Aruja says, last World Cup, Darwin got injured, and India moved Rahul up the order to replace him. Would they have been better off keeping Rahul lower down the order and bringing in someone else to open? Uh, Roll saved them in this game. Maybe it could have in the last semi-final. I mean, as a b- big what if, is there? Um, you put it this way. I can't even remember who came in for Darwin. Um, I need to go back and check that. But whoever came in for Darwin could have made 180 um, or could have been the player that win, win, wins the game. Um, or you could have moved Kale Roll and completely mo- ruined your middle order by doing that as well. Do you know what I mean? I don't. That's not a question that is easily answered. Because you're then putting K.O. Raul in the position where he's now got the ball moving around early on as well. Um, he's going to be in just as, I mean, New Zealand ball really, really well. Uh, Richard says, India struggles to beat New Zealand in World Cups. What do you think are the things that New Zealand can exploit or plan for to beat India this time? Uh, one thing I would say is I've seen a lot of this of, you know, Sri Lanka never beat Pakistan and India never lose to Pakistan and this one. And there's another one, I think, as well. You, you would have to look at the overall records. I don't think there's any team that like struggles massively, um, uh, you know, with those sorts of things overall. I so I wouldn't. I would never look at oh, India don't beat New Zealand in World Cups. Do they need to do something different in the World Cup? I, I think India need to play a format of cricket that exploits their best, the best parts of their game. I don't think they need to go in worrying about anything specific with New Zealand. New Zealand and India are both uh, very, very confident teams at the moment, although by the time that game happens, maybe things will have changed. But um, they'll have their plans and they'll do it. But unless you had, I'm trying to think of what it would be, unless you had a situation where you had a country that really struggled with tall bowlers and always lost to Australia, um, I don't know. Like, what are we really saying that this New Zealand team does that would bother India? Like, I don't see anything in that. So I don't think, I think you would just look at your matchups, look at what your team does best and go into the game. I wouldn't assume they'd do anything special. Vivek says, not sure if this is a consistent thing or just from one game. Uh, is it Cool Deep's dip that causes batters to play him off the back foot more often? Or do international players go back to buy themselves more time to react off the surface? I don't remember seeing anyone dancing down the track to make cool deeps deliveries at the point of pitching. Well, you're spelling quicker, Vivek. So that is a part of it. Um, I don't think you can. Um, I don't think you can. You know, move away from from that as as a, as a reason. Um, they might be trying to give themselves slightly more time just because they don't pick him as well as they do right arm wrist spinners. Um, I know it sounds really weird, but when a left arm wrist spinner balls a wrong end partly because I think the way they set up is more wrong and dependent. But also, there's something about revert flipping the image that seems to bother batters' minds a little bit. Um, 
might mean that they want to play back a little bit, but it, it could be his depth. The thing with wrist spinners is they've got more overspin on the ball than finger spinners do. So they do get more dip. So it is a very, uh, very possible. Ian says, if the predictions of this being the last but one ODI World Cup are correct, do you think this will re reverse the downward trend of test cricket outside the big three or will cricket essentially become a T20 sport? Yeah, I actually think t test cricket has been doing okay over the last couple of years everywhere. Um, it, until you have a solid infrastructure around it that means it makes money all the time, you're always going to have an issue with it. So it's always going to be there. But if ODI cricket does disappear altogether, I would actually assume that helps test cricket um, in some ways. But if you really want to safeguard test cricket, there's a number of different things you can do, or ODI cricket, but they would have to be separated. You can't have the people who are obsessed with um, T20 running test cricket and one-day cricket. That will be an issue going ahead if that doesn't change. Manon says, your favorite matches or moments from cricketing history to watch back? Um... <sighs> Uh, probably the last over of the tide test in um, 60-61 at the Gabba. I think if you've never seen it, I'm pretty sure there's extended highlights online. You know, Australia's cruising the wrong way, but playing brilliantly, you know, got this great partnership and then with about eight, nine balls to go, it just falls apart. And then, you know, the final run out is incredible. Um, I think that's probably one of my favourite. Um yeah, I mean, I've been watching all the old World Cups. I've really enjoyed it. In fact, I feel like I've learned. It's funny, ODI cricket might be on its way out, but I feel like I've learned more watching the old, old World Cups and why things changed when they did and how they changed in one-day cricket from going back and having a look at that. And then, you know, there's some great old performances, you know, Collis King and Gary Gilmore. Um, I, I saw, um, oh, my God, I'm going to forget his name, but the Indian player who makes the 250s in 83, Yashpal? Is it Yashpal? I think it is. Play an extraordinary shot in one of the old clips. And that's what I really like. It's probably not going back and seeing great moments. It's going back and watching something and going, wait a minute, we were told that they all blocked every single ball and, and just you know pushed into covers for one occasionally. Um, and you go back and you see improvisation from batters and you know see weird things from bowlers and you know all those sorts of things. I, that's the stuff I really love watching. Um, plus, you know, funny things like the streaker well is he a streaker the pitch invader that was complaining to um son of about him batting too slow hamster said why did liam plunkett ball cross beam across uh, seam bounces rather than regular bounces what makes them more effective cross seam bouncer means that if it hits the smooth bit it it will skid which means it's harder to get away from uh, more likely to hit someone uh, if it hits the seam, it might stick and go up a little bit, which means you will see it short and you think, well, that's a good length to hook, but it'll actually be higher, which means you've got a top edge. It's just inconsistency. That's essentially what players are looking for. Uh, and to be fair, Plunkett didn't just bowl cross-seam bounces. He bowled cross-seam everything. So he tried to hit back of the length, tried to hit the pitch as hard as he could, um, and then hoping uh, occasionally he'd get one to skid, get a bottom edge onto the stumps, and occasionally one will bounce a little bit more and it'll be spooned up in the air. Hamza says, what makes Ibrahim Zadran so much better in ODIs than his fellow batters in the Afghanistani squad? What does he have that they don't have? They don't have a lot of what I would call frontline batting talent. Um, they have a lot of incredible, you know, I think I termed this phrase a long time ago, but they have a lot of um, frontline, uh, they have a lot of number eights. I think I called them, you know, the team of number eights or many 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 years ago um and they haven't really changed all that much from there 
And what they've never been able to do, if you have a look through their entire history, is have consistent top-order players. I think Ibrahim Zadran, there's a couple coming through at the moment, but you look at them and they do look like the sort of players who can average 35 to 45 in in Red Bull cricket. Um, what I just want to... Is list A average as he played list A cricket? Yeah, so he averages 50 in ODI cricket and about the same in list A cricket. He's a consistent run scorer. Go through the history of Afghanistan cricket. They're not like that. They have a lot of all-rounders. Um, they have a lot of talent in their batting, but but more Muhammad Nabi type talent where you're just like, yeah, you want him to bat six, seven, eight. Um, well, eight's probably a bit bit low, but you know, six, seven type players. They don't have a lot of one, two, three, four, and it's just because they haven't had the facilities that, you know, it's not the kind of cricket that they got good at. It's not the way that their game developed over there. It, it will happen, um, but it might take some time. Uh, that's the end of the Patreon. Let me just go into the chat. Max Harris says, what if instead of net run rate, we use net wickets? Thank you for the super chat, Max. Oh, works better if I put it on the screen. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th- I mean, it's a, I think it's a sport where we look at runs. Net, I wonder if there's a way of doing a combination of net run rate and net average, which I suppose is net wickets. But I don't think we just want to do net wickets. Because um, if, if you take eight wickets against the side and they've made 380, um, and then, you know, and then you end up on two for two, 300, I don't think we would say that's a particularly close game. So no, I don't think it works. Net average is a bit more interesting to me, I think, but I'm not sure it's needed. And which says, all-time 11 of English players born outside of England versus those inside of England. Who wins? Um, the team inside of England would win, wouldn't it? Botham, Botham Willis, um, Truman, name your older spinners. Um, or Swanee even. Um, you've got some good batters in the other in the other side, but I can't think... Uh, maybe I'm just... Mis- I mean, Joffre, but he doesn't have much of a record. Um, I can't think of many great English bowlers who were not born in England, unless I'm missing someone. So, you know, you would have... You would have Stokes on the other side, but England could... Uh, but this team could pick both of them and Flintoff if they wanted to. Um, so yeah, no, I think the a home team would win, uh, quite comfortably. The home team, the home, home team. Keshav says, my question is what's more beneficial to associate members, ODI super league and 10 team world cup or 14 team world cup and no bilaterals before. Um, I would think it would be the ODI super league. I'll look at how much better the Dutch are than they were beforehand. Um, but I would also say that like, it wouldn't work if you did it that way because bilateral cricket, you can, I don't think you'd ever be able to play that much bilateral cricket ever again in ODIs, even in T20s. And what's the point in getting good if the other 10 teams are better than you? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, if you're the 11th best team, th- there's a reason why World Cups and Olympics have so many athletes and so many teams in them. It's not just about the best and, uh, against the best. It is hoping that teams will continue to try and improve. You have to give more chances for that. Uh, and, and this is a big thing in cricket. I've talked to so many people in associate countries and their governments all say a very, very similar thing to them over and over again of why would we care um, about cricket when the governing body don't care about you, right? 
So it's a really big thing for that. So I, I do think that matters. Kelly says, have you ever knocked someone out while bowling? Yes, but not in the way you think. I knocked someone out uh, by bowling. I was playing in a club game and I was trying to take my fifth wicket, bowling my very slow leg spin, and I bowled horrendous full toss and it was hit straight into short leg's head and short leg was not wearing a helmet because Australian cricket in the 90s. Uh, He got hit in the head, ball went flying up, he hit the ground, lost consciousness, catch was taken, we carried him off the field. he got consciousness back and asked us uh, what happened. Um, so yes, I have knocked someone out, um, uh, but not not in any normal way. Silver says, "Do you think Pakistan now have a chance for a spot in the semis after that record chase?" I mean, I think they had a chance uh, before. I think I had them as their that as their best case scenario. I don't think I was. I mean, I still worry about their middle overs bowling. Worry about their seamers a little bit. They put in one good batting performance and it was a fantastic batting performance. I think we need to see a lot more before that changes where we think their ceiling is. But their ceiling was still, did I have them in semifinals or even a potential finalist? I can't remember. Like, if everything works for them, they're a really good team. Um, I don't think that one chase changes how I think about things. Michael says, uh, have you ever been playing bowling uh, when you got to pick up the bowling ball and you feel that? Oh, okay. That's a weird one. Uh, Rohit says, with T20 focus, is picking players for the middle overs for bat and ball a key um, for 50 over cricket? There seems to be plenty of T20 style players now. Yeah, I think, I, I wonder if teams had fully understood, maybe is the best term here, how different this was going to be and how challenging this was going to be for certain players. I still think that if you're a good T20 player, you can learn to adapt. But do you get chance to learn to adapt now? Um, and can you go between the gears and all those sorts of different things? So, yeah, like for instance, KL Roll and Dawood Milan, who watches T20 cricket and doesn't complain about the speed at which they bat? And there are sometimes issues within one-day cricket for, for those players as well. But the speed at which they bat in one-day cricket doesn't matter as much as the fact that they can bat longer and which allows everyone else to score really quick. So if you bat longer in T20 cricket, you're just chewing up um, so many balls and the others have to score at like three runs a ball to make up for you at a certain point, right? Or you have to go crazy at the end while they're scoring at like two and a half runs a ball. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, I think all that is a huge difference and um, uh, the way that things um, go about fr- from that perspective. But yes, uh, it's different now. And I do think if we kept having one day World Cups and we have a Champions Trophy and all these sorts of things going ahead. I think that's going to be a fair question going forward. Is this a player who can do it? Yeah, we've seen them average 30 in the IPL, but can they average 40 in an ODI World Cup? Because it is different and it's a, you have to play differently and think differently. Um, I mean, I learned more about this from Nicholas Puran. 20-minute interview I did with him in 2019 where he was literally taking me through step-by-step how he's training himself how to do all this. Like, you could see him just being like, he virtually not played any list state cricket. Clearly one of their best six batters, has to play in the show, and has a great tournament as well. Fantastic tournament for a young player. But he was saying to me, well, I get to this situation and what do I do and how do I think and how do I train myself to think that and how do the nets help and all these sorts of things. It's a fascinating new world we find ourselves in uh, with that style of cricket. Anyway, thank you to everyone in the comments and everything else. Um, If you did manage to do both lives of mine, 
more power to you. Uh, huge fan. Uh, thanks to everyone on the podcast as well. Um, uh, uh, we are doing still five podcasts a week, but the way that the podcast is uh, being listened to more and more all the time, we will be looking at expanding. Um, we've got some other show ideas as well, some other co-hosts and all sorts of things in, in the back. So thank you to everyone for that. And if you're following us, uh, this woke up. The podcast channel is the one that we're doing all the lives from and the other channel is the one we're doing all the normal videos from. Please come over, watch, enjoy. And I don't always say this on Wagon Wheel, but I can promise you this, I'll see you again. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Sainapai and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today.